Good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Marian Tupi. I'm a policy analyst with the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. The importance of the European Union, both as an economic entity and increasingly an important player in a variety of international fora, cannot be overemphasized. The EU has an economy and population larger than those of the United States. It is a symbol of a new, or maybe I should say a novel, political and economic arrangement that looks to transcend the divisions of the Westphalian international system that is based on sovereignty of nation states. Since the Second World War, the members of the EU have pooled their sovereignty in a number of important areas, ranging from uh, common trade policy to common agricultural policy. The view is uh, to make economic and political integration ever deeper, or if you will, ever closer. The European project, I would argue, started off as a great liberal enterprise. It aimed at breaking down barriers to economic and political interaction between European states and, more importantly, European citizens. Europe was to prosper as a result of four freedoms, the freedom of movement of goods, services, capital, and people. Yet over the last two to three decades, the EU has ceased to be a mere enabler of a bottom-up type of integration. Increasingly, Brussels has been imposing rules and regulations on the European states that, critics argue, uh, should be decided at the local level, hence the provocative title of today's debate. Moreover, the critics observe that Brussels has been growing in power without the consent or enthusiasm of the EU populace. The EU constitution, for example, was rejected in Dutch, Irish, and French referenda, while EU parliaments, including those of Sweden and Britain, increasingly scrutinized the goings-on in Brussels. Was this top-down approach to integration an inevitable outcome of creating an independent bureaucracy based in Brussels? Does the EU really resemble a bicycle that needs to keep moving forward, otherwise it will turn over? Or should the integration undergo a process of hibernation? To help us understand these issues and to discuss them, I am delighted to welcome uh, our panel today. Our first speaker is uh, Dr. Fritz Balkenstein. Uh, he was the leader of the Market Liberal People's Party for Freedom and Democracy in Holland. In the European Commission, he was responsible for internal market taxation and customs union. He was born in 1933 in Amsterdam, and uh, before entering uh, Dutch politics, he worked for the oil company Royal Dutch Shell from 1960 to 1975. From 1982 to 86, he served as Minister for International Trade, and after joining Parliament, uh, again, uh, he was uh, the Defence Minister between 1988 and 89. He led the, uh, uh, the liberal uh, political party that I already described between 78 and 99. He was, as some of you may recall, uh, the famed author of the Balkenstein uh, Directive, uh, which caused uh, much, uh, uh, <laughs> which called all the socialists of Europe to go quite apoplectic for a while, uh, as he tried to enable companies from uh, several member states of the European Union to recruit workers in the European Union based on uh, the laws of their home countries. Well, the, um, 
I'm not sure if I'm correct by saying, but the watered-down Bolkenstein Directive was eventually passed in, uh, in during the Barroso um, um, Commission. With that, uh, please help me welcome uh, Dr. Fritz Bolkenstein. <clears throat> Uh, good afternoon, I suppose it is, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Dr. Chupi, thank you very much indeed for these words of welcome. I've been, given 15, I've been given 15 minutes to say what I have on my heart and uh, that I intend to do. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, the European Union is moving in the wrong direction. And I shall hope to, I hope to make that clear in the next 15 minutes. We now have the Treaty of Lisbon, which in many ways was necessary because we had to clean up our act. When I say us, our, we, I'm still thinking as a commissioner because the European Commission and the European Treaty had to be cleaned up. But there are also um, uh, aspects of the Treaty of Lisbon which I reject and which I regret have crept into that treaty. Uh, the, the most important one is, um, uh, uh, um, is something that may, may not have come to your attention at all, namely that the European Council, which is the, uh, the, the, um, the company of, of heads of state and government, that the European Council has become an institution now, you may well think, well, so what? Uh, it's not as simple as that. Institutions are the European Parliament, the European Commission, the European Court of Justice, and, and, um, and so on, the Council of Ministers, also an institution. But um, we now have an extra institution, which is the um, heads of state and government. And this means the attendant bureaucracy. There are now 20 bureaucrats that help uh, Mr. Van Rompuy, who is the head of, he's the president of the Council, of the, of the European Council. Uh, in 10 years' time, there will be 200. A new building will be devoted to that European Council. In fact, it's already uh, in the make. And therefore, we will get another, uh, an, another bureaucracy on top of the bureaucracy of the Council of Ministers, on top of the Commission, and there will become there will be a number of presidents, such as the president of parliament, the president of the commission, the president of the European Council, and the president of the six monthly uh, uh, um, uh, member state, that's, that's uh, whose turn it is. And, and I um, think it, that is a dreadful, a dreadful um, development. We should have stopped it. We didn't. But um, uh, there it is. And, and I regret, regret it very much. The second thing I want to say is that the Treaty of Lisbon means a shift of power from the Commission to the um, uh, heads of state and government, to the European Council, um, which is a, a, a development to the liking, I suppose, of a, a former President Charles de Gaulle uh, and also of uh, Mrs. Thatcher. But it is it, it is a way. It goes away from the original setup of the European Union, and um, I suppose that uh, uh, smaller member states, such as my own, such as Holland, regret this move away from the original intention of the European Union, the original uh, construction. Thirdly, the um, uh, the Treaty of Lisbon has has definitely and finally put paid to the idea of a federal Europe. Not many people now in Europe speak of a federal Europe, 
Uh, there is the European Parliament, about which I want to say something in a little while. There's Belgium, because the Belgians think that a federal Europe will over help them overcome their communal problems. And there is the, bu the Brussels bureaucracy, which is also federally inclined. But the Treaty of Lisbon has finally put pay to all that, except that that, 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 that fact is not, uh, not, not normally uh, realized by all concerned, and in particular not by the European Parliament. Now, the European Parliament still lives in a federal fantasy. It still believes in an ever closer union. You may recall these words were part of the original Treaty of Rome. Uh, an, an ever closer union has disappeared at least the idea, has, the concept has disappeared because of that same uh, uh, Treaty of Lisbon. And I think it would be, um, it would be awry, it would, it would, would be um, uh, a, a bad thing if people continued to think about an ever closer union because it, the concept should no longer play a role. Uh, but Parliament continues to believe in that. At least, as, as I've said, Parliament lives in a federal fantasy. It's an odd thing. It's an odd parliament because it has no opposition. There is an opposition on certain issues, for example, the directive on services, you know, pros and cons and so on. But there is no opposition to the idea of an, of an ever closer union. Uh, uh, parliamentarians who, who oppose the idea of an ever closer union are regarded as, um, as um, heretics that stand outside the the, the door of, of the uh, officially of, of the official church. Uh, so, uh, and, and, and this is an important fact because it means that the European Parliament is out of phase with the general public in Europe. Um, there, there's the, the percentage of people that vote for the Parliament is, is not very high. It's uh, around 50 percent or somewhat less. That in itself doesn't make it um, unrepresentative so much because in the United States, in this country, the, the voting participation is not all that much either. But the fact that it is basically out of touch with the European public, it, it's, it's, um, there is a, um, a market and an important uh, difference of, of, of philosophy between the European public, by and large, and, and the European Parliament, and that makes it really unrepresentative. Um, now, we are talking uh, this, this afternoon about, uh, about governance and about democracy, and, and I, I must tell you that uh, the European Parliament um, is not popular in Europe. Uh, the, the European citizens do not think that they are represented by the European Parliament, and this is at the bottom of it. And if a Parliament doesn't change its stripes, if it doesn't take into cognizance what the European citizens think and want and feel, then it will become steadily more unrepresentative. An example of that, an example of that is Mr. Verhofstadt, who used to be uh, the Prime Minister of Belgium and, and now is the, the leader of the liberal, uh, in the European sense, liberal fraction in the European Parliament, who wants to issue euro bonds. Now, this leads us into the murky uh, uh, story of, of uh, European finances, um, um, which is a long story involving also the, uh, the recent credit crisis, but uh, euro bonds should never be issued. Should never be issued. Unfortunately, the European Commission is also supporting this idea, but it would it would uh, open the gates to ever more 
um, expenditure. Uh, and that, that is not what we want at the moment. Certainly, all treasuries in Europe have to save money. The European Commission now wants an increase of 5%, which it will, won't get. But the, fact, the, the mere fact that the European Commission wants an increase of 5% in its, in its, in its buying power and in its budget shows that it is out of touch with reality in Europe, which, as you well know, uh, um, uh, consists of a number of treasuries that are bending over backwards to save money. So, uh, once again, the European Parliament uh, is on a, in, in a different wavelength from the general public in Europe, and if it doesn't change its stripes, it doesn't change its philosophy, then I think that, uh, that um, it will, uh, it will uh, be preparing um, a, 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 a hard welcome for itself. Um, I now want to say something brief about the Commission. I've already said that... Um, that unfortunately Mr. Barroso also believes that Eurobonds should be issued uh, together with the EIB and it should be for infrastructural projects. I, I think that, that should not happen and I think the European Commission should be kept on a tight uh, uh, rein. Um, <coughs> another remarkable thing about the European Commission is that some of its proposals um, are, um, are ill thought through. Uh, let me give you as an example the, uh, the idea that um, the, the, the results of a market process, the result of a market process, need not be accepted as such because, first of all, it should be ascertained whether the consumer is satisfied with the outcome of that market process. This proposal comes from the corner of consumer affairs. And as I've said, um, uh, the, the outcome of a market process, according to this, these people uh, and according to the Commission, because it's put down in a, in, a, in, a, in a document, should not be accepted as such. First of all, the Commission wants to know whether consumers are satisfied. And it will do so uh, by means of, of, um, of um, um, inquiries being sent around uh, uh, to find out whether consumers are uh, satisfied with the outcome of that market process. And if they're not satisfied, then the Commission wants to intervene. So if you take Toyota, Toyota has got a problem in one of their models, Lexus, uh, therefore these consumers are, are unhappy, and then the Commission wants to intervene. This betrays a fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of a market process. And it's, it's, I could give you more examples of, 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 um, of, of um, proposals made by, made by the European Commission which are nonsensical. The reason being that there are too many commissioners. There are 27 commissioners, and the work of the commission could be done by a dozen. So all these other commissioners, what do they do? They all want to become famous. We all want to become famous, so I don't begrudge them that. But um, they, they, they want to do that by taking initiatives. And they shouldn't. They shouldn't take initiatives. Now, telling a politician that he should not take initiatives is t totally counterintuitive. It's counter, counter, counter na the nature. Uh, so difficult to stop them. The only way to stop them is to reduce the number of commissioners down from 27 to 12 or thereabouts. Um, now, uh, one, one, last, one last thing. Um, 
Uh, about the about the uh, the the the, 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 the financial crisis we 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 we're going through, um, uh, ladies and gentlemen, the basis of the Euro, of the monetary union, the basis of the European well, of the monetary union, is the so-called stability pact or the stability and growth pact. That was um, um, voted uh, unanimously in Dublin um, uh, a number of years ago. It was a solemn declaration. It was a solemn declaration, and all signatories, all member states said that they would strictly stick to that agreement. Neither happened. And the question I would put to you, if, if this solemn declaration, which would be strictly observed, if that is, if it lands up in the dustbin after only a few years, the question is which solemn declaration of the European Union will henceforth be believed? It was also said that there should be no bailing out. We have bailing out. So uh, this, this, this saps, if you like, the creditworthiness, the legitimacy of the European Union, and therefore I consider this a very serious matter. The, 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 um, the, um, uh, my last, I have to stop talking, but my, uh, my last, my last remark is this, to, to, to uh, encapsulate my view of the European Union, I want to say that the EU does too much. The European Union does too much. And the trouble is that the people in Brussels, the people in the, in the Commission and in, 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 in the European Parliament, they don't realize this. So they're preparing themselves to run once again with their head into a brick wall. It happened with the, 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 um, the, uh, the, the, the plebiscites in the referendum in France, it happened in the referendum in, in Holland, and the other referenda, and they, but they don't see the problem. They think it is a matter of explaining better what the European Union does. But that's not the problem. The problem is that they do too much and that they should scale down their activities and listen better to the public because at the moment there are a bunch of unelected bureaucrats uh, with a European Parliament which is no longer representative of the true opinion of the citizens of Europe. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, our next speaker is uh, Angelos Pangratis, uh, who is the head, uh, deputy head of delegation uh, of the European Union to the United States. He is the former ambassador and head of delegation of the EU in uh, Argentina and also served in senior functions in, uh, uh, at the EU embassies in South Africa and South Korea. Um, in Brussels, um, Mr. Pangratis uh, was the head of unit responsible for relations with China, Hong Kong, and other uh, Southeast Asian countries. Um, he also headed the, per uh, the unit of the personnel and uh, budget uh, at Directorate General, and uh, also external relations uh, and uh, trade policy. Uh, he has lectured at universities in the Czech Republic, France, Belgium, United Kingdom, uh, Korea, South Africa, and many other places. He comes from Greece, uh, where he was born on the island of Corfu. I understand a very beautiful island indeed. And he has obtained a doctorate uh, from uh, University of Paris Pantheon in international economics, uh, monetary policies, and finance. And I'm uh, delighted uh, that he has accepted uh, our invitation to uh, come to Cato Institute today. Thank you.
Thank you, Dr. Tupi, for this introduction. Ladies and gentlemen, very pleased to be with you. Um, why do I have the feeling that I have a formidable task now? Um, <clears throat> we had um, a good, interesting, and fascinating starting point with uh, the invitation of the uh, Cato Institute. Uh, I found it uh, already a, a kind of challenging in itself. and. Um, I think, Dr. Tubi, you said it yourself, uh, there is something uh, of a provocation, even in the way it is presented, but the provocation, of course, of the good kind, what we need to make the debate interesting and, uh, 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 and build a, a, a fascinating, I hope, uh, exchange. At least the themes are certainly fascinating. And, uh, of course, uh, Dr. Borgenstein uh, he's a great figure of European politics and of the Commission itself, and he gave us a very impressive list of issues, impossible to deal with all of them in 15 minutes, even in the five minutes of discussion. So just let me uh, try to um, pick up a few key uh, comments to make, because I think the real challenge in this big debate, when we talk about the EU, we talk about the complexity of the modern world, we talk about the effort to find the governance that makes sense in a world that is becoming more and more complicated every day, more and more interdependent every day, in a world where globalization uh, moves ahead in, uh, in an impressive speed and with it a, uh, a fundamental change in the interdependence among nations, individuals too, but nations particularly. And somehow I think countries around the uh, world, the public policy, let's say, is uh, struggling to find a way to respond to these changes uh, that are taking place uh, in terms of interdependence, in terms of uh, the new globalized world that is emerging. And uh, simply, I think globally, we don't have the answer. I think the starting point uh, of any reflection of the kind that pretends to talk about the future and how relevant the EU is for the future has to, uh, to be the following. If you, if you take the more telling aspect of the international relations of our days, I would argue that uh, this is the fact that uh, public policy in general is tracing the challenges that it's facing. It's, uh, it's fighting to keep up with the challenges of modern world. Take the, the dominant issues of the day. What are they? Let's say the economic crisis, the financial uh, uh, challenge regulating the, the, the financial uh, entities that are more globalized than governments. Um, we need much more than uh, what we have in terms of public policy. Take the uh, climate change. Are we really uh, having a public policy response that uh, allows us to claim that we are really doing enough uh, to respond to that? Take, take trade. Are we really advancing the rules of international trade in a way that keep up with the challenges of modern world, take the currencies. My point is that uh, beyond the technicalities and the specificities, the real challenge is do we, are we building a, a governance, a system of governance that makes us able to respond to the challenges of the modern world? That's the bottom line. Uh, the technicalities are endless. The real de the debate uh, about possible issues um, are equally endless. So let me, uh, uh, with this in mind, um, make a couple of comments on some of the aspects that were uh, raised in the invitation, because I think they were per pertinent and in the, uh, uh, in the introductory comments by Dr. Tupi. Uh, 
Um, concerning the EU, I think there are some fundamental misunderstandings, or very often, too often to my taste, uh, we have uh, criticism and arguments that are, in my opinion, superficial. We don't really see the substance of uh, uh, what is happening. One of those uh, misunderstandings is this uh, uh, first statement in the, uh, in the uh, couple of first lines of the uh, ten lines that were used to invite us here, that the Lisbon Treaty means a, a formidable increase of powers in Brussels and uh, the, uh, the area of foreign relations and the, the creation of the foreign service uh, is more or less given as an example of that. Well, because we are talking a lot about the new institutions and particularly the high representative vice president of the commission, the new external action service of the, of the uh, uh, EU, uh, just please keep in mind in all this debate that, uh, in fact, uh, in this big area of the external competencies of the EU, the external uh, powers attributed to the EU, Lisbon Treaty has not changed anything. Uh, it's just an arrangement of institutions, of processes, of uh, putting together uh, resources, of uh, uh, deciding in a certain way, but the basic competencies, the, the way the powers of Brussels are defined compared with the powers of the member states stay exactly the same in the external relations area, which is one of the more dynamic uh, areas, we hope, of the Lisbon Treaty, and I believe we will see changes, but they are not part of this uh, power grab process at all. Uh, something else is happening. Um, the same with uh, this uh, big uh, debate about the, uh, the fact that uh, some national referenda were lost uh, uh, for the, uh, for the uh, ratification, for the acceptance of the Lisbon Treaty, and somehow this is a democratic deficit. You know, there, there again, I find it a fantastic uh, um, you know, simplification. I mean, why the first Irish referendum with 1.4 million uh, Irish participating and uh, 53 uh, saying no is democratically more valid than the uh, second where 1.8 million Irish participated and they gave a 67% yes? I mean, first, uh, there is a big debate to have about uh, representative democracy and the role of uh, referenda, but uh, certainly uh, um, uh, adapting adapting what we are proposing, what we are presenting to our citizens uh, because they were not pleased with that and coming back to that and, and asking them to uh, uh, think again there's nothing undemocratic, quite the contrary. And I would argue, really it's a big debate, we have just a few minutes, but think of it. I mean, uh, what is democracy? What is the, modern cha the challenge of modern democracy? Is not, uh, uh, you know, to have... Um, necessarily uh, a, a majority rule at the level of the big entity of a big federal state. If you go uh, below the federal structure and you ask the states to uh, approve what you want, if each of the state has a veto, this is certainly a guarantee of, from a certain point of view, a guarantee of the rights of the minority in a certain respect, a, a guarantee of the uh, uh, rights of the states, and it's an element of deeper democracy. And the Lisbon Treaty, uh, the way it was accepted, I would argue, uh, 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 represents nine years of democratic processes which can be seen as a, uh, a, a process of uh, a profound democratic uh, value. Um, concerning the... Um, the bureaucracy, you know, uh, that's a big debate. But there again, what does it mean, a bureaucracy? 
Uh, of course, uh, we have bureaucracies to manage more modern world. Um, I don't think the issue is uh, 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 bureaucracy. By the way, you know, the whole EU, we are all something like 30,000 uh, uh, people, less than the staff of, a, of an average municipality. <clears throat> uh, if we are really so powerful, then we are a very efficient bureaucracy. You cannot combine both. If we are really concentrating so much power, then at least you have to recognize that it's a very efficient democracy. By the way, you, we, uh, the budget of the EU is 1% uh, of the GDP, is limited to 1% of the GDP of the EU, right? which is a tiny amount. And uh, uh, the, the legislation that is produced in our member states is to a very great extent based on what is happening in Brussels. There are estimates between 60 and 85% of the new legislation at, level, at the level of the member states originate in Brussels. So at least if we really have all this influence, we must be a very efficient bureaucracy. The issue is not the size of the bureaucracy itself, I would argue, with all due respect for those who argue differently, is how much democratic accountability this bureaucracy has. And that's the issue of the democratic, uh, the debate on the democratic deficit of the EU. Now, the democratic deficit, um, again, an enormous uh, uh, debate, but uh, I don't think anybody can argue that, uh, that the Lisbon Treaty um, um, is a, a, back, uh, a step backwards at all. Clearly, uh, the Lisbon Treaty represents a formidable, I would argue, step forward. Uh, first of all, the, uh, the role of the European Parliament. Now, there is a debate about the representativity of the European Parliament, and I am very sensitive to the argument that we just heard from Mr. Bolkstein that the European Parliament needs to connect with the citizen much more. I think that's a formidable debate. I would agree with that. This is the new horizon of uh, building a real a political system in the EU connecting really the European Parliament with uh, the citizen. I think it's a big heading that we uh, cannot expand too much now. It remains that I would argue that, of course, the European Parliament has a very high legitimacy like any parliament elected directly in our representative uh, democracies. And uh, if there was an argument that I would have subscribed in terms of uh, of uh, uh, democratic deficit of the EU institutions is that we did not have really the European Parliament, that means an elected body, uh, accepting all our uh, legislation, which is the case now. As a result of the Lisbon Treaty, everything that is produced in terms of new legislation of the EU, it is indeed, it has indeed to be accepted by the European Parliament, uh, uh, which is, uh, that has the full legitimacy of an elected uh, body. And uh, we have the additional uh, additional step forward in terms of accountability even of the Commission because the President and the, commissioner, uh, the Commissioners uh, are, um, um, are accountable to the European Parliament. And in addition, we have a higher involvement of, uh, of uh, the national parliaments that can argue about, uh, you know, whether the, uh, uh, the, the something can be better done at the level of the uh, EU or uh, at the level of the states. We have clearly a uh, stronger voice for the citizens with one million signatures, and it's already uh, uh, working. Uh, we have a better definition of the competencies between member states and the European Union, and uh, we have the, the clear uh, uh, possibility for a member state to withdraw from the European Union. All that... Uh, all those elements are key elements increasing the, um, uh, the quality of democracy at the level of the EU, and I think really uh, it should not be 
um, uh, underestimated. Now, looking forward, again a huge debate, but just a couple of key ideas really. The, what the EU means for the future, what's the relevance of the EU for the future? <clears throat> again, um, there are many imperfections. There's a lot that can be done better. But I think we should not uh, miss the, the sense of history. What has happened? What is the strength of this process? Beyond its imperfections, and again, there are plenty, uh, what, what the EU has really achieved? It was built to achieve peace. I think it was said and uh, repeated. But how has it achieved peace and stability? Uh, I think basically there are two, two fundamental concepts there. First is the, the, nation, the nation transformation. The transformation from within is uh, the definition of values, the definition of uh, the same, the common legislation. Think in terms of enlargement, what it uh, takes for a, member, a new member state to become a, a, a state to become a member state of the EU. Uh, it has to adopt, of course, uh, all the criteria, the Copenhagen criteria, uh, political and economic conditionality, and the 100,000 pages of our legislation. So this is a process that transforms a state, and we have seen this. This is history. It's not, I'm not saying that. It's history. We have seen transformation of states step after step of uh, uh, enlargement. And uh, when uh, the, the state becomes member of the, uh, of the EU, the process is not finished because that's how the EU uh, works. I told you 1% of the GDP, the EU budget, but maybe 70 or 80% of the legislation produced. So we are building a system where uh, member states learn to live together and grow in doing things in a compatible way. Uh, what I call transformation from, we, from within. And the other basic concept is the prevention or resolution of conflicts or difference among sovereigns. You can think of the EU as a system, as the unique system in the world of rule of law among sovereigns, among states. This means uh, uh, that um, it is, in fact, a formidable system of preventing uh, uh, frictions, because of the transformation that I just mentioned, more we have common ways of doing things, less differences that we have in a world where interdependence is exploding around us. It also means that there is the rule of law among sovereigns to, to, de to deal with differences that they have. And it also means that because of the deeper integration and the deeper interests that we share, we can do uh, uh, wider compromises on a wider basis. That's why the EU is a constant negotiation uh, uh, linking things that have nothing to do with each other. You give me that, I give you that, and then uh, they are, uh, on a wider view of interest, a, a better capability to, give, to find compromises and move forward. And please link that with my introductory uh, remark. Here, what we are talking about is a, form, a new form of governance. And this is what we have to appreciate if we really want to answer the question, what's the relevance of what is happening for the future? It's a new form of, of governance that makes a state more able than anything else that we know to handle their interdependence, which is a challenge much wider than uh, uh, among the Europeans. So from that point of view, the basic strength of the EU, the basic mechanisms of the EU, that have uh, created this uh, formidable success of peace and stability on the European continent 
are the same uh, mechanisms that are particularly relevant for the future. And at least we need to try, we need to understand that because we need to try to project these uh, same concepts at a wider, on a wider basis. I don't say they are perfect. And there are plenty of valid arguments in what we have heard before and, uh, uh, and in arguments that can be uh, made. But uh, here is a, 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 an example that is um, unique in modern governance and uh, I think corresponds to the fundamental uh, needs uh, of, uh, uh, of managing this uh, exploding interdependence among uh, nations. Uh, to finish with the last uh, concept that I want really to leave with you is that this governance is not based on uh, rules, regulations, bureaucracy, and uh, imposition of the state on the citizen. I think that's probably the most deepest misunderstanding of the, of the EU. Think of what the EU meant for each one of us, for each one of the citizens of the EU. What does it mean to be a citizen of the EU? What does it mean? It simply means that uh, you, as a citizen of the EU, or whoever is there, has a, a number of additional uh, rights. The right to uh, study in another country, the right to live there if, they, if he or she so, so decides, the right to uh, work, open a business, etc., or, or buy a, a holiday house in, on a Greek island. It's a right. So there are plenty of rights, the, 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 uh, and there are others. Okay. Um, also, the whole effort of the EU to create this common economic space, the internal market, the similar way of doing things, the ability to have recognition of your social rights and, uh, and uh, um, uh, coverage, you know, health coverage in another country, etc. Uh, it means that simply the EU has, without doubt, created a much uh, more integrated space, thus more compatible to live, to adapt from the individual's point of view, a much open space to the world. I don't think there can be any serious doubt on that. And uh, uh, it has recognized a formidable set of additional rights to the individual. For the individual European, the EU has been a fantastic mechanism of increasing freedom, individual freedom. And I think it's important to uh, keep this in mind for the rest of our discussion because it comes at the heart of what the core values and the fundamental values of this integration process are. Thank you for your attention. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador, uh, Mr. Deputy Ambassador, and, and, and thank you for uh, coming willingly into the lion's den of my invitation and also Dr. Bolkenstein's remark, remarks. Um, our last um, speaker is uh, Professor John Gillingham. Uh, he is the Curator's Professor at the University of Missouri, uh, St. Louis. He's been a professor at that university since 1986, and before that time, uh, he uh, lectured at a number of prestigious uh, institutions, including uh, Europe's own uh, European University Institute in Florence. He's obtained his uh, bachelor's from University of California, Berkeley, 
where he also got his master's and eventually in 1973 uh, his PhD. He is a, an author of uh, a number of uh, books, including uh, uh, Belgian Business in the Nazi New Order, Industry and Politics in the Third Reich, Coal and Steel and the Rebirth of Europe, and Design for a New Europe. But perhaps his uh, greatest contribution, in fact, undoubtedly his greatest contribution to uh, research on European history, is his European integration between 1950 and 2003, Superstate or a New Market Economy, which came out in uh, 2003. Uh, with that, please help me welcome John Gillingham. <clears throat> Well, I'd like, first of all, to thank the uh, two initial speakers who made uh, brilliant opening statements and hope that I can do my part to, um, you know, not be the weakest link in this chain. Uh, what I had in mind was something a bit different from, um, from what they discussed, which is basically um, in, the institutions of the EU. Um, I'd like to address, in a general way, the question, will the EU attempt a power grab? Will Brussels, in other words, um, whatever that is, and how many ever many bureaucrats uh, are housed there, will it exploit the present world financial crisis uh, by seizing new powers called competencies in uh, Eurovolapuk, which is a special artificial language that they use, create new agencies, administer new authorities, new committees, new working groups, etc., uh, set new priorities, commission new studies, um, develop new procedures for review and accountability, um, all of which act, uh, future activities will surely in the, in the future be buttressed and bonded uh, by networks and teams of lawyers, lobbyists, um, academics, and miscellaneous experts that are now grouped under the heading urologists. Um, I don't know. But I want, to, I, want to, I want to drive home the point that we're not necessarily talking about discrete institutions with clearly defined functions. We're talking about a proliferating uh, maze of uh, ensnarled uh, agencies, offices, boards uh, of almost any type doing a variety of things that seem sometimes relevant to the central core mission of the EU and other times completely irrelevant. I'd like to know, for instance, why the European Union needs to launch its own GPS system when a perfectly one, good one was, was paid for by the American taxpayer and available for free. Uh, I read in this morning's paper, and this is the way things can proliferate, that the European system called Galileo will now require another 1.7 uh, billion uh, euro, euros uh, capital infusion in order to complete a project that will be delayed by 10 more years. Um, where's the supervision? Who's in charge? Where's the transparency? Uh, we will we'll, probably some of us not live long enough to see these damn things fly. Uh, and in any case, the technology is already obsolete. Such things smack of catastrophe, uh, and there are others too. Um, how about the present crisis as an outgrowth of flaws in the design of the European Monetary Union? These flaws were well recognized by the negotiators who set it up. Um, and if they didn't get the, if they didn't get the uh, idea quickly enough, they uh, 
certainly would have had trouble withstanding the attack from a phalanx of American economists headed by uh, none other than the director of the National Bureau of Economic Research, uh, Martin Feldstein, who pointed to fundamental design errors in the way it was uh, the way it was constructed, to the folly, for instance, of trying to regulate, to take an analogy, temperatures uh, in areas of Europe as diverse as, as uh, Finland and Portugal by a single thermostat, uh, an attempt certainly to lead to people freezing in one part of the country and sweating uh, in one part of the continent and sweating in another. But this kind of an outcome, though not predicted and not favored, uh, was one that, of the kind that has been uniquely propitious to the growth and development of the EU in the past. The EU has, when one takes a look, long look at its history, more often than not, stumbled, stumbled, stumbled backwards from failure to success. Thus, the things that the European Union has, has done over the time have grown, and they have differed. It's changed its character fundamentally as an institution. I can't go into the history. I've written 100 pages about it. Uh, and I, I, mean, I, I can't attempt to summarize it all in eight minutes. But the point is that the end result of the European Monetary Union, whether it succeeded or not, would be, was meant to have been, the political federation of Europe. This, after all, um, was the visionary scheme, the noble dream of the man, uh, the, the real father of, of the European Union movement, Jean Monnet. Nowadays, we hear less about teleological ends. We hear less about European federation. Um, and a great deal of discussion concerns how Europe can get out of the present mess. One approach, frequently expressed by German academics, who, however, in this respect, don't represent the majority opinion, even there, is that Europe should should gain fiscal powers in order to have the policy levers uh, like those uh, that the United States enjoys with the team of uh, the Fed and the Treasury. But this proposal is really uh, has a, should have be given the status of a, an intellectual speculation rather than a, rather than a realistic policy option. It's hard for me to believe that at this late date that the net losers in the grand bargain that is the EU, such as the Dutch, the Germans, uh, and the Swedes and others, are going to tax themselves in order to benefit the, na the net gainers who are now derisively called, and I apologize for using the term, pigs. The chance of this happening is virtually nil. But in play uh, here is something more important than mere matters of dollars and cents, or should I say euros and cents. Um, at the root of, at the, at the nub of the problem is a matter of trust. And the fact is that most Europeans have lost it. The time to quibble about the real meaning uh, of the latest Eurobarometer is long since passed. The EU um, is frankly unloved and little respected and grudgingly accepted, though grudgingly accepted as a, a necessity, especially in uh, Eastern Europe. Um, that is the, the area of the former Soviet uh, bloc and in, in, of the Soviet Union itself. There is, across the Union, a genuine and deep felt, felt reluctance to grant powers of any kind to Brussels. Um, this attitude is shared by, by uh, Europe's well-wishers as, as, as well as those who in the past have been stigmatized as Eurosceptics. Last week, um, Dennis McShane, the former uh, and very strongly pro-European um, Europe minister in the Labour government said that Europe was going to have to wait for, for a generation of new leaders to um, enter the scene before a real change can occur. 
the skepticism is also evident in the negotiations that are leading to the formation of the next Dutch uh, government coalition, uh, which is specifically disavows uh, the support for any new European initiatives. The same skepticism has taken a more concrete form in the British Parliament, where none other than uh, M uh, Bill Cash, William Cash, who is the most serious and committed Eurosceptic in the Conservative Party, will head the new screening committee that will vet all European legislation uh, to, 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 to determine its consistency with British law. So there are going to be new breaks that are, that are put on, uh, introduced at the national level to the development and expansion of the European Union. Now, the sources of this disenchantment uh, tra trace back uh, most immediately to the, the Maastricht settlement of uh, 1992, from which emerged the present so-called three-pillar structure of, of, of the Union itself and the proposal for a Euro European Monetary Union. I can't, I can't trace step-by-step step how this, this disenchantment grow. Both the other uh, previous two speakers have dealt with the issue in, in greater detail, and I have time to do so here. But in addition to the, to the growing unpopularity and lack of trust in the EU, there's another reason why I think that a power grab is going to be unlikely in the future. The fact is that European is, uh, Europe is entering a protracted period of austerity, um, which will tie the hands of all politicians and frustrate initiatives at, 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 at the national as well as the international level. There is not a lot that, that they can do, given the constraints of uh, deleveraging and, uh, and, and promoting expansion that will uh, have a, not a measurable but a major impact on the development of the EU. Uh, one speaker, I believe, uh, uh, Marion Tupi, spoke of a period of hibernation. Uh, I don't think that it's going to be. Uh, I don't think that it's going to be quite um, that um, dormant. I think that one will have many initiatives, though. A, 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 let's say a secondary and tertiary importance and nothing major. There will be no attempt at a great leap forward or whatever, a great relaunching or a re-relaunching. Surely the European Monetary Union must be reformed itself in order to, to, to find the way, uh, a route out of present difficulties. There are several, a couple of ideas that have been in, in circulation. One is to uh, kick the pigs out, if I may use that term, out of the union, the weaker, the weaker ones, and, 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 and confine it to those nations that can confidently look forward to meeting the, the, the Maastricht criteria. Uh, that, that limits the amount of budget deficit, national indebtedness, and, and, and rate of inflation growth. The other, the other proposal that's m most often muted is just the opposite, uh, that Germany should secede from the European Union. In my view, both of these, both of these uh, alternatives uh, are ruinous. Um, what I'd like to do is simply put on the table at this point a scheme for reforming the European Monetary Union in such a way that it works more effectively, yet keeps alive the hope that the European can eventually evolve into, and I won't use the term that's more used, I'll use the old American term, a more perfect union rather than a closer union. This proposal would revive the circulation of national currencies uh, based upon the decisions of, of, of each member of the uh, European Monetary Union. They would have the choice of of, of reviving their currency uniquely without the euro, beside the euro, or they, if they chose, they don't have to do that at all. But they could, they could, they could just continue to use the, the, the euro. Such a, a scheme would introduce 
the el an element of flexibility that's now lacking in the way the euro the euro is administered. And it's I can I can be sure you can be sure that I'm aware that it's fought with certain difficulties, which I think can be exaggerated. But the point is that that, that the currency of each nation would be able to 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 reach you know its it, it, the level of its economy's competitiveness, um, and this then would 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 uh, solve at least the major part of the the uh, one size fits all. Straitjacket that the European economy uh, faces today, and um, which is has made the, the present financial crisis uh, a systemic crisis in the European Union. Politically, such an such an EMU could be organized roughly along the schemes of concentric circles. And this, in, at the core, at the nub of this, would be those nations that that a respect the Maastricht criteria, and b use the euro, circulate the euro. Various forms of associate membership would be would be would be for those nations that that don't meet one or the other, but they would have the opportunity to enter to enter the more elite and powerful central group if they should if, if they should if they should meet the the criteria. So, an EMU thus reformulated um, might not necessarily pave the way to an eventual political union. But it could lead to something different, a better union. The EU itself, not the EMU now, is as unstable as is the EMU. Neither union, neither, neither one of these two related unions has effectively allocated power and responsibility between the center and the member states. It's a very big statement and requires much more elaboration than, than all three of us together can provide in, in, in a meeting like this. The ultimate solution to the European Union's problems as to uh, those of the European Monetary Union is structural reform. The, Euro, the, the EU can and should be rebuilt on a foundation of bilateral treaties between contracting member states entered into as needed. Here, as I say, I can only introduce the idea and not discuss it in, in, in the necessary detail. The European Union, in other words, would survive, though, in quite different form. Uh, it would be more responsive to the needs of the publics of the member states. It could, it would, could dispose of whole swaths of this gigantic and proliferating bureaucracy. It could lead to a wider union, and so on and so forth. The European Union is indeed worth saving. To be sure, its great accomplishments belong mainly to the past. The European Union gave, gave rise to a new kind of diplomacy. It produced a more or less single market, still in need of improvement. And it can take credit for launching enlargement, which is the most constructive of its policies that still are underway. This is a tremendous feat, taking democracy and best practice to places that did not know them before. It hasn't lived up to its, to its, to its vast promises or the hopes of the, the, uh, the, the citizens of the former nations of, uh, of the Eastern Bloc, but so what? It's a great achievement. Just think of where it can go. It's not over. There's the, what is called in, in, in Eurosprache, Eurosprache, the Western Balkans, you know. That's a place for constructive policymaking. And when we're thinking about that, let's not forget Turkey and Ukraine. I know we don't agree on all these things. <laughs> The point is that um, whether it functions well or not, um, the European Union remains, in spite of it all, 
a beacon of hope for, Europeans future, for Europe's future. And let me make one final point, and that is that no one has yet, not even its most severe critics, have yet quite figured out how Europe can do without it. Thanks. Thank you, Jack, and thank you for, um, uh, for that idea about currency competition. And whilst we are at it, maybe we should have some currency competition in the United States as well, considering where the dollar is heading. With that, um, let me first um, ask the speakers to um, um, reflect on what the others were saying in the order that we started. Uh, Dr. Bolkenstein, do you have anything that you would like to add? Well, thank you for giving me the chance to say some, make some further remarks um, about um, the matter of uh, the matter brought up by the representative of the European Commission. Um, I still believe that the European Parliament uh, does not reflect the situation in the member states. As I've said before, there is no opposition in that parliament. It still believes in, in ever closer union, even though that is, has been ruled out by the, uh, the Treaty of, of Lisbon. And it, um, uh, it, it disregards the, uh, the rule of subsidiarity, uh, which, as you may or may not know, means that every um, every competence should be exercised at the lowest possible level where it still produces added value. Uh, the, these are things which um, neither Parliament nor, I must say, the Commission um, um, uh, take into consideration, and, um, and that is a, 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 a bad thing. Um, there is, ladies and gentlemen, no institution in Europe to restrain the act activities of the European Commission. And as I said before, politicians want to be, be active. They want to show activity. They want to be re-elected. They want to be reappointed. And um, they want to make a name for themselves. And all this is perfectly understandable. I myself have been a, 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 a politician for over 25 years. So I understand this. But altogether, it produces um, a, a dreadful situation where Brussels spouts ever more uh, initiatives, which, uh, as often as not, are totally unwanted. Um, in, in general terms, I'd like to say to the representative of the Commission, that indeed the European Union, then called um, the European Economic Community, has been astoundingly successful. Because what were the, uh, the, um, the, the purposes at the beginning? They were to, 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 uh, to repair the damage of war, to make war between France and Germany forever impossible, and to keep the Soviets at bay. Now, the, the, it, we've been successful beyond belief in, these, in achieving these three, um, um, in these three aims, even though the third one, keeping the Soviets at bay, of course, was more uh, a result of, of NATO than of the European Union. But nonetheless, it's been extremely successful. Now, my fear is that um, the fortunes of the European Union have passed through um, a zenith and are now going to descend um, to the extent that future historians will point at the present situation as being the high point, the zenith of, 
of. There's no water here. Have you got any water there? Yeah, yeah sir. Um, that that um, that from now on. Um, the European Union will lose cohesion, will lose effectiveness, will lose popularity. Uh, John Gillingham has spoken about that. And, and therefore will decline in, in, um, in value. That is my fear. Uh, and uh, some of the things that, ha that have been happening show, out, show, show, show up the, the, the fact that this, this indeed is, is taking place. Uh, and, and that is not something uh, that, that uh, to rejoice a, a person like myself, because after all, I am a supporter of European unification. The relevance of Europe will, I'm afraid, uh, descend uh, into, um, into irrelevance if, if things continue like this. Um, now, about the enlargement, a word. Uh, this is another example of where things go astray. <coughs> the enlargement with Bulgaria and Romania came far too early. Far too early. Why? Why did it come so early? Because, <coughs> excuse me, because the heads of state and government, the famous European Council, decided that they had to become a member by 2007. Why 2007? Well, because that's what the Council thought. And here you can see that the European Council does not really know how the European Union functions. Or they wouldn't have said that. Now they say that in future enlargements never will be a uh, uh, starting date be mentioned, but it's too late because they are now inside the Union, and um, uh, that means that any desire to improve the situation with regards to the mafia or to corruption. Now, uh, the European uh, Commission has no further uh, uh, arms to, to fight against these situations. So I um, am uh, I'm also opposed to the, the entry of Turkey, but that's a separate story. And if anyone wants me to uh, talk about that, then please say so. Now, uh, secondly, uh, sec about John Gillingham, uh, his his story is much more congenial to my way of thinking than um, than the, the uh, story of the of the representative of of the European Union. Um, his 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 suggestion of a parallel currency is um, is 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 interesting. I must say, I ha I'll have to, I'd, I'd have to think about that. Uh, I'd have to think through the consequences of allowing a separate currency alongside the euro. Um, I, I hesitate to say yay or nay at this moment. Um, to to uh, have a structural reform and, re and, and, and base the European Union on a series of bilateral treaties, I think is a daunting task. I do not know whether it can be done at all. Uh, and uh, it means that you would have to, if you think back of the Conference of Messina, that you have to break up what was then jointly agreed into these bilateral treaties. And quite honestly, I have my doubts whether it's possible at all. What Professor Gillingham has said on the, on the credit crisis is, of course, uh, very, much, very, very true. Um, uh, the basic problem of the uh, EMU, of the European Monetary Union, is that one size fits all doesn't work 
among countries with a radically different economic culture. And we have two groups of countries in Europe with a different economic culture. It is not the center versus the periphery. It's not the east versus the west. It's the north versus the south, typified by Germany and France. Germany and France have radically different ways of looking at the economy. The Germans want um, discipline and, and, um, and, and um, competition. Uh, the, the French want uh, a greater part of government intervention. And in their, in their wake, uh, the other Mediterranean countries follow suit. And the true, the true, uh, the true scandal of the, recent, uh, of, of the present crisis uh, and of, of, of the, the, the Greek imbroglio is not only that Greece lied about its statistics, but that it was allowed to enter the monetary union in an agreement between the European Commission and, and, the, and the member states, which should never have happened. Greece should never have been admitted to the uh, economic or the European Monetary Union, and now you see what happens. So um, it, it's, it's, it's quite a tragic story all along, and, and um, uh, let us hope that, that we take, that we take counsel uh, from the things that, that have gone, uh, gone, um, uh, gone astray. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Mr. Deputy. Mr. Deputy Ambassador. Thank you, Dr. Putubi. Um, I must say I uh, enjoy deeply the quality of the arguments put forward uh, uh, by both speakers and now by Mr. Bolkstein particularly. I start with him and his comments. Um, and um, I would agree on something f fundamental, I think. Um, he states uh, a little bit direct way uh, that the EU is moving in the uh, wrong direction, and he explains this very uh, eloquently. Uh, I think I would agree that the, uh, what the EU does is not necessarily uh, perfect, and uh, a lot of things are happening uh, that are not uh, perfect. And I believe very deeply that uh, we need the kind of debate that uh, is launched uh, here, because we uh, need to think carefully about every uh, step that the EU as such is taking and uh, invite everybody to realize how much uh, the EU is a unique experiment. We are learning as we are advancing and this is part of, uh, of uh, the concepts that we need to keep in mind when we uh, consider uh, the future and how much uh, debating, uh, studying, uh, hesitating, arguing in all directions is uh, a necessary uh, part of uh, the process. Defending the EU does not mean defending any aspect of possible uh, uh, initiatives that the EU is taking. This being said, um, uh, the points that I want to, 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 to take up briefly, um, I, I, I think um, this idea of uh, this commission out there, that there is no restraint to the commission and uh, uh, on the initiatives that it is taking, it can be uh, misleading for people who do not know the, the, the functioning of the EU enough, because the Commission does not have any real decision-making powers. Uh, the Commission takes initiatives, but the powers to decide, the powers to decide are with the Member States 
and with the European Parliament. And the member states certainly have uh, a, a say uh, and have to decide on anything significant that the EU um, uh, is uh, pretending to act upon. So we should not uh, – I don't think it's fair to have uh, this concept of big distance between Brussels and the member states' capitals. It's part of the, of the basic characteristics of the EU governance. Member states are everywhere in the process of the decision-making of the EU, even within the Commission itself, because we have special committees to prepare our proposals. So they are everywhere. So you cannot, I think, you, we should not leave to the audience the impression of this dichotomy that uh, I think in, in very great extent uh, does uh, not exist, and on the contrary, it's one of the strong characteristics and unique features of, uh, 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 of the EU governance. Now, I repeat this debate on the European Parliament. I must say I share the fundamental feeling, I believe very much myself on a personal basis, that this is the new frontier of the advancement of the EU, is how the politics of the EU will really bring the elected representatives closer to uh, the European citizen, I think, is the next challenge of the European integration. Again, that's a kind of personal uh, opinion. For the time being, the way of election, the way elections are, are arranged, uh, uh, in fact, people, uh, uh, voters, vote for national parties, which are represented to a second degree at EU level. And some, somehow, we have to bring the EU politics to the European citizen. But that's an enormous uh, debate for uh, politicians with uh, uh, big experience like Mr. Bolstein, and uh, that's, uh, uh, that's uh, 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 as I said, in my opinion, the new frontier of, the, uh, of building the EU further. Another important uh, thing to keep in mind, when we talk about the EU increasing some of its budgetary means, uh, again, very briefly, um, it can mean if we, if, we, if we see the EU only increasing you know, its requests, it can mean that they are out of touch with the overall reality of the EU. It can be. But that's a kind of debate that we have also with the creation with the, of the EEAS, the, the new external action service of the EU. Uh, uh, we might need some additional resources at the level of the EU to do what we are mandated to do as Commission or EU institutions. If by uh, uh, spending a little bit more at the EU level we become more efficient and we save more money uh, from the uh, national budgets, then the whole thing takes a different perspective. And I would argue and I would agree that we need to, uh, uh, to be preoccupied about this um, uh, dimension or related to any uh, thought or proposal of additional uh, expense at the level of the EU. If not, we would run the risk, of, uh, as Mr. Bolstein uh, said, to be out of touch uh, uh, with uh, the reality. Um, uh, a last comment on, uh, 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 on the overall, really, uh, argument, uh, how relevant the EU will be for the future. Again, I understand what Mr. Bolkstein is uh, saying, and it's, uh, it's, a, it's a real question. He says, we have been very successful in building peace, uh, uh, dealing with the Soviet threat to some extent, uh, building peace between France and Germany and on wider basis. But where are we going now? Are we really... Uh, declining? Are we really losing popularity as EU? And is this uh, now a process that will not be reversed? And that's what I tried. I think that's a key. That's a key point. That's a key concept. And that's what I tried to to to, to explain in uh, in my speech. Um, I think there's something else that drives the that drives the EU now. 
there's something else that will make that the EU will, in fact, uh, become stronger, not less relevant, despite the difficulties that we are having today and the difficult setup internally and in international. And that's the, th the, the, the fact that the EU governance with the main characteristics that I tried to explain before uh, uh, correspond to a fundamental needs of our, of our times. We need this kind of governance to be able to have the Europeans together dealing with the challenges of our times. And I would argue that the world needs more of these principles on, 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 uh, uh, on a wider basis. And I think this will drive the EU. And the real strength of the EU is that beyond the difficulties that we are seeing, in fact, we are seeing in parallel the European integration uh, advancing uh, very significantly. And I finish with a comment on, uh, uh, on, on, on Mr. Gillingham's comments that illustrate my, this last point. Uh, when we look uh, at what, ha what happened with the monetary crisis and the euro, just to take the core element, I think, of, 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 of the points that you uh, made, what has really happened? It is true that uh, the, uh, the euro and the EU had to face a situation of crisis for which we were not prepared, for which really our system had not uh, uh, in advance established uh, mechanisms and answers. And what we have seen is the top leadership of the EU getting together and taking decisions that really responded to the situation that we had. I would argue it's a long story, a lot to say. But fundamentally, we knew what were from the beginning, what were the weaknesses of the European uh, uh, Monetary Union. We, we knew that the common uh, currency is only sustainable if we exercise fiscal uh, responsibility, if we have convergence of competitiveness, and if we can cope with the crisis that, are, that we are going to come on us. And we had no mechanism for this crisis. And the mechanism for, our, for convergence of competitiveness proved to be not completely at the level that we are needed, nor those of fiscal sustainability. So the whole governance of uh, the EU had to, the, the monetary union had to adapt. And we have seen progress in the economic and monetary governance of the EU that were unthinkable six months before. We have seen decisions for hundreds of billions of mechanisms of, of support taking over weekend or days or uh, becoming operational within weeks. And I finish with that. So the, what we have seen, I would argue, is the EU uh, uh, being able to manage a degree of flexibility that can be a great asset for the future and working out of the crisis much stronger than before the crisis uh, uh, arrived. So I, 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 I would draw a little bit different conclusions from those that uh, you drew, and uh, I think it's a, an example that we need to think from that angle too, flexibility and ability to respond. Okay. Thank you very much. Professor Gillingham? Uh, I'll try to keep – I'll try to make – uh, keep myself, limit myself to some brief comments. The first is on the crisis itself. Um, I, I don't see it as being a great triumph of EU diplomacy. I mean, the, the situation was rescued by the IMF, which led the stabilization effort, contributed largely to it, supported by the United States. This came after months of dithering uh, in the European Union. What, is, what has come out of this crisis is, 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 is a spread in the, in, in the, uh, an increase in the spread of sovereign paper, which should always have been there. Um, and um, unless, unless we will consider all, all uh, sovereign debt equally risky, this introduces a measure of, of, market, um, uh, of market discipline that was lacking before, but it's usually not considered to be an achievement. Um, 
the fact is that you know you, the European project got the same kind of bailout from the IMF that faltering nations do. Uh, it's not. It's not. Uh, I don't think it can be regarded as a great a great triumph of of um, of integration uh, diplomacy. Another point I think that has to be made is about the budget. The EU has, it's true, its budget is limited to 1% of the union's GDP. But you have to bear in mind that the, EDP, the EU doesn't really deliver any services. It doesn't put out fires. It doesn't teach children in school, except in a very sort of minor way. It doesn't bury anybody. It doesn't, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't keep the water flowing in pipes. It talks about all these things. It advises about all these things, and it tries to regulate them. So that's why it employs comparatively few people as opposed to, let's say, the city government of, of Amsterdam, which it used to be compared to in terms of the number of employees, but now which it's, it's outgrown. Um, the, the, EU, the EU budget, another, another, another point. Where does the money go? For most of the history of the EU, over three-quarters of it went into a price support system for farm products. That was the substance of integration. Eventually, in, in, in the 70s, it took on the responsibilities of industrial policy. When the European steel industry, uh, rather than form a cartel, uh, got to Brussels to wave a wand over one. Um, and then, of course, it developed a free, mar in, 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 in a free market here in the mid-80s, the Single European Act, much overdue, and so on and so forth. Um, it has... But what it doesn't do is, it, what, as I say, is provide essential services that, um, of, of, of the nation state. And I, and I chose the simplest <coughs> possible examples. Um, I wonder, we've heard a lot from uh, Dr. Pandanus in his, in, his, in his interesting and um, very valuable remarks, that something like the EU is necessary uh, because of the increasing complexity of the world. I just like to ask, uh, isn't it contributing, perhaps unnecessarily, to this complexity? I mean, what, what state of affairs have we reached when the president of Ireland, the, excuse me, the prime minister of Ireland, the strongest single power behind the adoption of the Constitution, said he's never read the document because he wouldn't understand it? Uh, I don't know where accountability begins, but certainly not at this point. Can, can, can I, can I? I'd, I'd like another point of clarification, and, and, and I'm sure that, that, uh, that, that, that Dr. Pendratis can provide it. I'm, I'm, I'm unsure as to whether the Lisbon Treaty has changed anything or everything. Is it important or is it not important? And if so, more specifically, how? There doesn't seem to be any agreement on this point. Even, and I find it, I find it the, 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 that the discussion is still a little, bit, a little bit confusing. So I'll just leave it at that, and uh, I want to thank um, both of my... my um, my fellow speakers for their for their excellent contributions. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Gillingham. This turned out to be a, a bit of an unconventional forum because uh, we have run out of time and we don't really have uh, time for Q&A, but I felt it very important to allow three uh, most interesting speakers to uh, talk about uh, this important issue, and I would like to ask them to perhaps um, stay back or, or rather stick around for another uh, 20 or so minutes upstairs as we all enjoy lunch. And maybe those of you who have questions to ask uh, can come up to our guests and uh, to our speakers and uh, talk to them upstairs. Thank you very much uh, to all of you for coming. And, uh, <laughs>